Welcome to another edition of Thesis Theater. I'm Chris Swank. I'm the preceptor of uh, these two wonderful graduated Signum students. We've got Franny Moore-Kyle and John Costello. And we're going to be talking with both of them about uh, the theses that they just recently completed. Let me tell you a little bit uh, about both of them. Franny's originally from Southern California and she's lived in central Arkansas now for more than 25 years. She married her high school sweetheart and all three of her children <clears throat> are fully grown. She currently has eight cat children and 18 chicken children. Those are your pet babies. And uh, BA from California State University Fullerton in history and English. She started Signum back in the spring of 2012 with Dr. Sturgis's Harry Potter class. Wow, that's right back at the beginning. And she's been reading science fiction and fantasy since she was about 12. She's been active in conventions, filk singing, and fan fiction in several fandoms. She also knits, crochets, cross-stitches, needlepoints, and any other crafty thing that makes her say look shiny. <laughs> Welcome, Franny. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. John Costello began his career as a naval architect marine engineer and upon graduation from the Webb Institute of Naval Architecture in 1989. After working as a naval architect for six years while also performing IT systems management, he went to work as a sales manager and later a marketing manager in the aerospace industry. Upon graduation from the University of Baltimore University of Maryland at Baltimore School of Law in 1999, John moved on to a corporate counsel role supporting businesses in aerospace and defense industry. John passed the patent bar in 2009 and has been working for 10 years as the managing counsel for intellectual property and technology for Laureate Education, a company which owns and manages a worldwide network of over 60 universities. He currently lives on the eastern shore of Maryland with his long-suffering wife, three boys, age 10 to 15, and two dog babies and two cat babies, your pet children. All family members enjoy sailing, fishing, reading, and some enjoy riding motorcycles while others are dead set against riding of said motorcycles. Welcome, John. Thank you. So tonight we're gonna to talk first to John and then to Franny, and then we'll have them both on the screen together. I do have the questions box available, and you can type your questions in at any time, and I'll try to check that from time to time and pass along your questions to the candidates. Um, I'm Chris Swank. I started Signum back at the beginning as well, and I've been in many classes with these guys, and I was their um, thesis director and proud of it. We had a really good time. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what we did. John, why don't you introduce what your thesis topic was and why you chose that? Uh, certainly. So I, uh, I chose uh, politics and steampunk literature. Um, and I, I would say I came into it uh, very slowly in terms of developing the, the, the overall topic itself. I, I love steampunk. Actually, I love any type of reading. I'll read anything, but, um, you know, particularly enjoy the fantasy, science fiction, horror. And steampunk itself seemed to be, a, you know, it's a relatively new genre. So quite honestly, how wrong could I be in my thesis uh, by taking positions on almost anything? It seemed to be a good way to go. Uh, but but seriously, I, I, I really just love the, you know, some people consider it an aesthetic. I love the steampunk, steampunk aesthetic. Um, as sort of a, um, a hobby over the last 30 years or so, I've been paying attention to politics, economics, and history, and reading, you know, as much as I could on the subject. And so I tried to marry that hobby with, with my thesis topic. So uh, eventually came to politics in, in steampunk literature, and that sort of flowered out and developed from there, too, a little in a couple different directions. So if somebody wasn't familiar with the steampunk genre, how would you um, define that for them or explain to them in a few sentences what steampunk aesthetic is? Sure. So it's, it's a, uh, a version of alt history in which that, that posits the idea that in, uh, the, in Victorian England, uh, rather than society eventually uh, industrializing and moving on to today's computer-based computer, uh, computer -based, uh, world, 
rather steam and steam power and steam mechanics took over and more or less achieves through the use of steam engines all the same sort of technology that we have today, uh, but without all the modern day uh, computer oriented conveniences and things like that. So it's all history. And then it combines elements of, uh, of fantasy, of course, of magic. Uh, there's alchemy and, and uh, you know, a lot of uh, cool robot, you know, steam powered robot type uh, contraptions and wild devices and things like that. And then, of course, it's an adventure. Um, you know, it's, it's fiction and it's there's usually a, a crisis that must be solved by a, a hapless or, or uh, honor bound hero. And uh, all of the activity that goes on in, in a steampunk novel usually um, is it sort of uh, glorifies or originally original steampunk works glorified uh, Victorian call. Um, if I wanted to read uh, just a few like of the best of the best steampunk works, what would you recommend? Because I'd, I'd have to start. I mean, to me, cornerstone of, of everything I read, the the best uh, books for pure steampunk uh, aesthetic and and writing would probably be James Blaylock's Homunculus and Lord Kelvin's Machine. Um, there have been more recent, you know, as, as steampunk has evolved. Uh, there have been some amazing novels written, and uh, one of the ones I'd recommend highly is Dexter Palmer's um, The Dream of Perpetual Motion. Mm. That one is good. Um, Tim Fisher asks a question. Would you consider all Disney's 20,000 Leagues film with its Victorian Nautilus perhaps as early steampunk? Yeah, unintentionally, yes. And I think that that, that work, along with H.G. Wells' uh, or the world's has ex post facto been pulled into the genre. Uh, and even before, so the, the three founders of the genre were uh, Tim Powers, uh, K.W. Jeter, and uh, James Blaylock. But even before that, uh, another set of works that totally typifies steampunk writing would have been Michael Moorcock's A Nomad of the Time Stream series. Again, pulled into after the fact, after the definition of what steampunk was came into being in the 80s. So I guess we could also throw in there that uh, great TV series, The Wild Wild West. Absolutely. That was always one of my favorites. Uh, and I see what you mean about the, the action in connection with all the great inventions, because you had the Jim West side, and then you had the Artemis Gordon side, and they kind of are the two sides of steampunk, I think. Yeah, no, that's that's a great way to put it, and and you know it it I think that again it's a, a relatively new genre, but emanations of this this aesthetic have been sort of surfacing over time, uh, to the point that now it has become its own thing. So tell us about your research. You know, you said it was a fairly new genre. So has there been a lot of secondary? literary criticism written about it, or how did you go about researching steampunk if it's so new? Yeah, no. Uh, so so it's, it is relatively new. There's little scholarship on the subject. So when I when I decided I wanted to go to the, go the steampunk route, uh, I looked around and, you know, uh, there, uh, the first thing I found was steam, a uh, Mike Pershon, Professor Mike Pershon, who styles himself the steampunk scholar. And he had a tremendous uh, amount of advice as to reading lists and steampunk information on his website. So that was one, uh, you know, sort of, hey, let's just Google and see what we find. Uh, I then, you know, I, I went to uh, Amazon, the source of pretty much everything I buy in the world, and uh, Googled steampunk scholarship. Well, Amazon steampunk punk scholarship. And I found three, uh, three, collections of essays, uh, all written relatively recently on on steampunk. And so I, I picked those out as well. Uh, but then, you know, in, in order to understand politics and steampunk writing, you I felt that I needed to understand the Victorian era itself, because it became important to me to know whether steampunk literature is reflective of actual Victorian culture. 
And so I chose two works there. Number one, uh, in one of the forewords for one of uh, K.W. Jeter's books, it was mentioned that uh, that one of the inspirations, one of their main inspirations of those three original uh, godfathers of steampunk writing, if you will, uh, was a book by Henry Mayhew called London Labor and the London Poor. And this was a book uh, written uh, during uh, the, the industrial rise of, uh, during the Victorian era, uh, Henry Mayhew was a, a sort of a failed uh, newspaperman who went out and decided to write the definitive book on the capitalist um, class that was emerging, the poor capitalist class that was emerging in London and, and benefiting from uh, from the industrialization as well as you know uh, suffering from it. And this was an unbelievable source that just talked about every little detail down to the penny of if you were a costermonger in the street selling some wares that you were building yourself and trying to eat by a living, Mayhew laid out the cost of each item that a costermonger would sell and, and in the different jurisdictions in London, what price he or she could expect to get for that, for that uh, good. Uh, so that was unbelievable and, uh, and really soaked you in, in that culture. And then I also pulled a book uh, just for the history, just a flat history book almost, uh, called The Victorians. Um, and this book uh, chronicled the entire, you know, London through the entire reign of Victoria. So what did you discover? Is steampunk uh, accurate or how do they play with history? Well, it, it, so it's it's funny to say that that you want uh, that you want an alt history genre to be accurate to history but uh but of course being type a i probably do to a certain extent and and to me it was important to find out you know so so as i read these various steampunk works uh it, it was clear that they sort of fit into three different chronological categories uh the first being uh, the the early works of steampunk um by those three authors uh, you certainly could take again war of the worlds etc and those works really did, I mean, they portrayed uh, the, the Victorian culture very accurately, um, admitting the, you know, warts and all, you know, yes, there was racism, yes, there was sexism, but hey, there were some good things too, and we're writing an adventure in this world. And, uh, and so that's, that was interesting. Um, the second wave of steampunk literature has, obviously, uh, maybe not obviously, but as you would expect, expanded beyond that original template and, and moved steampunk stories out of Victorian culture into different time periods, the future, into different locations, you know, Seattle, Washington, uh, into entirely non-existent worlds um, and, and sort of taken elements of the steampunk aesthetic and replaced it with other elements and these works tend to be uh, tend to be more thoughtful, perhaps maybe less fun to read, uh, and and tend to have do tend to portray a political uh, agenda uh, that the authors are trying to present more so than the original works, and uh, and in some ways have sort of taken a different or, or very derogatory view of Victorian culture. Although not all of them, some have been very complimentary. So, so that's um, group one, the the original yeah. group, and then the the social commentators. And you said there was three groups that you could yeah, divide. Yeah, so I, well, I and I probably misspoke there. So, the, in my paper, I term them waves. Uh, I think probably with a little bit of help from my preceptor. But uh, being that as it may, uh, first wave, first wave uh, steampunk was very uh, true to Victorian culture. Second wave uh is is different uh in the ways i i described and then third wave I, I went on to speculate what third wave might look like and i'm basing my opinions on what third wave might look like on the recent you know those three novels those three collections of essays uh critical analysis of steampunk um of steampunk writing and quite frankly what the critics are directing steampunk authors to write so 
Yeah, we'll just have to wait and see if they go that way. Uh, you mentioned Professor Mike Pershon. One of the fantastic things about Signum is that we have no uh, boundaries. We will ask anybody to come be a part of Signum and just um, off the cuff, we decided to approach him and see if he would be your second reader. And he said, yes. How great was that? Oh, that, that was fantastic. I mean, uh, I, I don't want to say, you know, I, I get a little bit of celebrity star uh, you know, jitters or anything like that. But, you know, when the first thing that pops up is uh, Professor Pershon's website, when you begin your research and then Professor Pershon is reading your thesis and commenting on it, uh, it it's it's special. Yeah, it was it was really um, it was really neat. And uh, um, I really enjoyed working with him. He's from Canada and uh, um, does does quite a bit of this. I think he's got a book coming out in the not too distant future on based on his uh, dissertation. So anybody can read that coming up. Um, what is the most unexpected thing that you found along the way? So I, I would say the most unexpected thing I found was the lack of diversity of thought in the critical analysis of steampunk literature that I read. Um, and, and uh, it was it was largely an echo chamber, and um, it was kind of disappointing. Uh, there there aren't many uh, opposing viewpoints uh, in, in these in these essays, uh, and they were of a type that steampunk literature should be used to uh, vilify and crush and destroy Victorian society. And uh, I think, you know, just on a personal level, I think that that, you know, any society can be criticized in multitudes of ways and every society has positives and negatives, but to call for the universal um, condemnation of, of Victorian society is, is a little bit ridiculous when uh, it really contributed so much good to our world. Uh, and then I'd say even the, the more shocking uh, thing for me was uh, to find out that, that a lot of these uh, scholars uh, are, are advocating a Marxist, you know, philosophy, um, which, you know, and, and pushing that philosophy and, and trying to show how steampunk can be used to further uh, Marxist philosophy. And I, I just think that, uh, you know, in, in any chain of logic, when you when you work out your chain of logic and you come to a conclusion and your conclusion is something nutty like an ideology that led to the deaths of 80 million people in a century is is a good thing. Uh, you know, neo-Marxism. Uh, I, I think there's something flawed in your chain of logic or you might be a little nuts. So <laughs> I read these uh, I read these essays and I was I was kind of appalled. Do you think that these social commentators are using Victorian England as a stand-in for 21st century America in that way, that maybe they're actually critiquing this society? Yeah, in, in many ways, absolutely. And, and as you know, the industrialization that took place in England uh, damaged the environment. And uh, of course, today that is a huge uh, issue and, and we have people on all sides of the fence uh, we have real damage to the environment, and we have maybe not real damage to the environment, but things that are portrayed as such. As always, there are two sides to every, as one thing you learn as a lawyer, two sides to every argument. And, uh, but yes, uh, in, in these essays, there was, there were absolute parallels drawn between the industrialization then and the computer age now. Yeah. Well, uh, if anybody has any questions for John, now is the time to type those in as I'm going to wrap up with him and move on to Franny in just a second here. Um, any ideas of what you're going to do next? Are you excited about research now and continue to do it or, or this is yeah, well, kind of I mean, a final act for? No, sorry. Uh, as you can as you can tell, my career uh, I've been thrown out of almost every reasonable career and in industry over the course of time, um, and I have jumped from one discipline to another, and and I'm now looking for some focus in my life. And the the thing I'm I'd like to jump again, and I, I really would like to write a book. Um, so and Mythgard has been invaluable in the education I've gotten here, in in learning what it what you need to learn to become a writer. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Kate Neville has a question for you. Did you just look at literature or did you also look at any films? Uh, no, I, I excluded films. I, I read the books and I have a very, again, type A way of doing it. I, I'll take 
hundreds of notes and, and citations for every book I read to be used later. And I found that just writing about the books, I ended up with like, I, I'm sorry, Chris, again, but it was something like a 50 page paper that I took, you know, my first draft was completely scatterbrained insane. So I, I just didn't have the time to go for the, for the movies and music and everything else. Well, hold on to that idea about the first draft being scatterbrained, because when uh, would we get you in conversation with Franny, I think that's something we all three have in common, because I've been through this process, not too distant past as well, and, and we can talk about that. But for now, I'm going to take you off the hot seat. You can play with the, your, your cat there wants to get in on the action. And, uh, and now I'm going to talk to Franny Moore Kyle, who did her research. Uh, I'm just basically going to say on Immortals, but you can tell us a little bit more detail what what your uh, thesis topic was well I, I call we call them immortals but they're not technically immortal they're not none of the characters I looked into were were gods or totally immortal but they were very long-lived and this is what I was interested in is how a character how, how a character re responds to the change in culture and uh, people and technology over the over a vast lifetime. Um, I looked at three different series of, mm -hmm. of books or texts. Uh, the first one was the, uh, the a series of five novels by Robert Heinlein that feature Lazarus Long and his extended family and their very long lives. Uh, the second was uh, a series of novels that is still being written by Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough on featuring uh, a vampire character, the Count of Saint-Germain, uh, but they're not vampire stories. They're actually historical horror stories. The vampire, the va his vampirism isn't the horror. It's what actually happened in the world at that time. That's, that's the horror, that's the antagonist in each, each story. There's, I haven't read them all. There's more than 25 books, and she's still writing. I um, and then the third was a uh, television series, um, the Highlander Highlander the series, um, which of course was based on the the, the film with uh, Christopher Lambert and and Sean Connery. But the TV show uh, starred. Um, oh boy, talk about. Uh, starred other people, and I cannot for the life of me remember his name right now. But Duncan McLeod, the Clan McLeod, you know, there can be only oh Adrian Adrian one. Paul, uh, Adrian Paul, of course. I don't know why that fell off my tongue. Um, uh, and it it involved his his life for several years with various other immortals, as well as with various mortals. So it it really gave it. Um, some insights into how he uh, dealt with with these things, and of course, this all the flashbacks, and we see his his life from his original birth to the time the series starts, which is 1990, covers from 1992 to 1999, um, and it was in real time then. So, what was current then was current. Then. I mean, uh, not very good. Some cell phones, but not much. Uh, not nearly as much uh, cell phone or computer technology as we have now, but some. Uh, uh, it's uh, but the, those three, even though they're not, uh, you know, they're, as I said, they're not technically immortal. Uh, they have extended lives. Now I chose to ignore other vampire stories. Well, mm -hmm. the elves of of Tolkien I did cover because they're not the other. They're in fact they're the firstborn in in. In Tolkien's uh, Legendarium, there, there. If anything, the men is the other in Tolkien. Um, if you're focusing on elves, but then other vampire stories. Uh, the earlier ones are the the vampire is the antagonist, and is um, it's more focused on how to kill them, how to find them, and how to kill them, mm -hmm. rather than on how they live. And then the current wave of vampire stories are mostly romance stories and the fact that one of the characters is a vampire isn't at all an issue it's just you know 
he might as well be lactose intolerant, you know, the, <laughs> other than he, he drinks blood, you know, one of the, it, it's just not that, that's not, not the issue, you know, it's, uh, so I stuck with these, with these three uh, series of texts and, and really got a, a, a wide sampling of, of ideas of, of how characters deal with changing times. All right, so I got a message that, that uh, your camera is going in and out for Annie, but I don't think there's anything we can do about that. It, um, I think it just went out, yeah. Yeah, but it, it I went can out see and you. came back. Yeah, I can see you now. Um, yeah. <laughs> so if you had to pick uh, one of the uh, Chelsea Quinn Yarborough books for someone to start with. Oh, well, I started when she first, when, when there was only one. Uh, Hotel Transylvania was first published in 1978. And I had read it when I was uh, fortunate enough to meet Miss Yarborough. And we've, we've not maintained a friendship, but we've kept in touch on and off through conventions and conferences and she was uh, kind enough to answer some questions for me in my research so I, I would with I, I think reading them in publication order it's probably better because her writing style is more you know is more of a flow rather than trying to follow the characters in chronological order um, because it's we've you've got Five thousand chronology to, to deal with with him, and or four thousand, four, four to five thousand years worth of chronology with him, and she's written things from ancient up to current day. So uh, publication order, so as good as anything. Publication order, I think, is is probably the best to. Uh, it originally started out as a five book series, was what she was contracted for. Wow, there wasn't there a there's a animated film called Hotel Transylvania or something like that. Is there any? Yes, and it has nothing to do with okay. with uh, Saint Germain. It's and, an and animated Heinle series. Heinlein's is a bit more, uh, it's not what we really consider a series, is it? It's well, more it starts off that just he's, he's a character. Yes, they're more related books, although the last three come one right after the other. Uh, I think it's hard to tell when they have such extended lives and they're they're flitting around the the, the cosmos at relativistic speeds, um, and they can pick and choose what era and what timeline they come out in when they come out of rel their uh, relativistic stuff. It it's uh, I'm not a physicist. I only know some, but <laughs> but it's. Uh, it, it gets a little, you know, it gets a little complicated sometimes with with the uh, with the science. Although they they started out, uh, Lazarus Long first appears in Methuselah's Children, which was originally serialized uh, in Analog or Astounding Stories. I think that was before it became Analog um, in 1948, and then he did not revisit the character until 19. 78, I think, when he wrote, no, no, 19, sometime in the 70s when he wrote uh, Time Enough for Love. And that brought back mm -hmm. uh, Lazarus Long and also took him back to his own childhood, to uh, revisit his own childhood in, uh, uh, Lazarus went back to his own childhood in, in Missouri in 1916. Uh, I read a, a biography of Heinlein as part of this, and I was, uh, it was interesting to see how much Lazarus Long's life, early life mirrors Heinlein's early life. And in truth, I think I've found that Lazarus Long is certainly Heinlein's alter ego in, oh, in many ways. That's really interesting. Uh, Kate, seconds, so. Kate seconds your suggestion to read um, the Chelsea Quinn Yarborough in, in publication order. So mm -hmm. what was the what was the most important thing or the most interesting thing that, that you did learned from this research? Are there any similarities between these works? Any kind of ties you can draw between them? Yes, and, and this surprised me. I, I did not expect to find this, but the single most important uh, 
uh, goal or, or motivation for all of these characters was building a family, having people around them that they cared about, that they, that uh, whether it's blood, uh, actual biological family or uh, just a collection of, of like-minded people or a combination of both. Uh, vampire, uh, uh, with Yarbrough's, there, there actually is a blood relationship since he makes new vampires by, with blood, but he also uh, brings people, uh, makes a, a, another class of, of uh, immortal, his, the ghouls that's, that serve as the uh, uh, daytime assistants for basically for the vampires. The, they do all the things that vampires can't do, uh, but they are also immortal. And, and uh, this is a technique he learns in ancient Egypt. Uh, Duncan MacLeod, even in the very first episode of the season, you do of season one, you you do meet Connor MacLeod. Uh, Christopher Lambert came back and, and reprised the role, uh, and they're as cousins. Uh, they think of themselves as cousins, uh, but he he. Um, He's always got uh, an Airsats family running. His, uh, he takes in the young uh, potential immortal Richie, and with his, mm. he and, and the and his girlfriend. And then after the girlfriend is killed, it becomes Amanda. And there's a couple of episodes where they do touch on, uh, on the fact that immortals can't have children. And gee, this will be the only type of family I'll ever have. Kind of uh, uh, with. Wistfulness and several flashbacks where uh, Duncan has put together a family, or you know, or uh, taken on a taken in a widow and and children to to take it uh, to raise as his own, uh, because he can never have his own have his own children. And I think this this family that he builds around himself is the is the constant through through the series, and in some of some of whom go go back into his his uh, earlier life you also had the same problem John did of not having an abundance of secondary research mm -hmm. to draw on so well, how did you do with that how did you manage that? well um, there is I found a couple of reviews book reviews of, of uh, Ms. Yarbrough's books and of course I mentioned I was able to ask her some questions uh, the uh, Highlander. There's a lot of fan fiction out there, um, but there's also a, a book uh, uh, that is an authorized uh, tell-all type of thing, and it, it's all of the Highlander iterations, and it does a episode by episode guide, interviews with uh, the cast and crew, with the writers, uh, talking about what they were. Uh, what they meant, you know, what they were doing in certain areas, um, and that was, uh, although it's not, it wasn't an academic work. It was very helpful in understanding the the uh, roots of the uh, of the stories and what they were trying, to, you know, what they were. Because some of some of them were fluff. Yes, some of them were very very uh, uh, were trying to say things. Definitely, just like you know, like a lot of TV. Series shows that have uh, any kind of uh, social responsibility, you know, try to, but yeah. still being entertaining. Yeah, I know they have quite uh, a bit The Heinlein was different. There's, yeah, the Heinlein was different because there is, uh, uh, I had read the, the uh, I've read the two-volume authorized biography, and there's also a, a, uh, a critical analysis that goes story by story, book by book, through his entire career. Uh, and uh, that was very helpful, uh, putting things in its place and tying the stories in with his with what was happening in his own life, which have, you know, of course he says he wrote his first story um, to, it's so he could pay off a mortgage, but and he was very definitely uh, a proponent of uh, you write for money and that's the only way you write. He f he did not appreciate criticism. Uh, not I'm not. Not meaning like review bad reviews. I'm thinking of he didn't like uh, academics looking into what he really meant or 
what this really means in context. He because he didn't he didn't consciously put that kind of of thing into his stories. Uh, in fact, in in one of the last books, he he uh, he recommends that uh, literary critics and and academics be put in a uh, in a Klein bottle, which means it just the exit is the entrance. It's kind of you know it's one of those strange uh, mathematical things where you can't get out, and they'll never bother you again. That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Um, but he did I, leave his papers to a to a university, so I don't know too know. many authors who really enjoy what we academics are doing to their works. It's not a pleasant process. It's kind of like picking apart, you know, somebody's baby. Uh, mm -hmm. Spent a lot of time on. Okay, any questions for Franny? Now is the time to type, and I have one that popped in. I understand your reasoning behind excluding Tolkienish elves, but uh, did you look at any of his letters or histories of Middle Earth material on immortality? Oh, any of his theories of immortality or ideas? No, I, 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 I sort of just walled off Tolkien. Uh, it's because I think if I started to go down that road, I would never have been able to keep it at a reasonable. Yeah. Uh, I just had to, I had to make some restrictions and that was one of the ones I made. Yeah. I well, did. Oh, go ahead. I did, I did read, um, I did read a, actually, which turned out to be a philosophy book uh, on immortality in, in uh, Western literature. And it was, uh, because it was going, it, it covered the classical literature, it dealt very much in uh, seeing immortality as a uh, Christian concept and only looking at that as, the, uh, as that, uh, that the only immortality you should, you should strive for is, is of your soul. And, and one of the things I, was, I, I wanted to, to do is, is see more of in a because all of these works were were done in what his it not truly not unreligious but really a post-Christian you know where uh, people are not as wholeheartedly religious as they were in past centuries. Uh, I really didn't want to look at, at the uh, religious concepts, and none of these. Um, works really go into religion, although uh, Dun uh, you, they, they have church, you know, other than Duncan MacLeod not being able to fight on holy ground, but it's anybody's holy ground, not just Christian holy ground. Mm. Uh, Saint Germain, of course, pays lip service to the church when he's in a, a, a church-oriented uh, area, and when he's been in other countries. He he uh, he does what he has to to blend in and to to look. Um, Heinlein, the only time he really got into uh, the idea of religion, even was with Stranger in a Strange Land, and uh -huh. that's just very peripheral to to the Immortals. In, in that, characters from Stranger show up at the end of of the uh, Lazarus Long Cycle. Oh, that's interesting. All of his characters show up at the end of the Lazarus Long Cycle. <laughs> All right, so I have a big black box where John used to be. I don't know if you shut your webcam off or if that's a, a function of your internet service, but are you still there, John? Can you talk and can we hear you? I am. I, uh, oh, yay. I see. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm sure it'll pop back in. It's telling me that, uh, that it, the camera's on, so. Yeah, I showed that the camera's on as well. So I'm not quite sure what's up there. Hopefully, you'll pop back in. But uh, so let's let's talk a little bit uh, amongst ourselves, and uh, if the audience has got any insight on this as well about the whole thesis process. You know, John, you talked about how your first draft was. I think it was close to a thousand pages. Is something reading? Yeah. And and every time it comes up, I will apologize again. No, no. What's hilarious is that this happens to everybody, and mine was as well. Franny, how long was your first draft? Um, oh, I don't. 
remember. Yeah, I, I'm not a linear writer, so it was it's hard to really say. Yeah, <laughs> I write I write batches and then put them but get together like a like a jigsaw puzzle. So it's it's hard to say what what it could have been, <laughs> how long it could have been. Right. Uh oh. But if I if I if I'd been what more. Uh, you know, it expounded more about the the, the storylines of, of each of these characters and all I could have gone on for pages and pages. Sure, sure. So, John, how how did it, uh, <laughs> how was your writing process uh, and uh, end up with all those pages? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, in, uh, I are. mean, two notebooks full of notes with page numbers and quotations and then and then I culled through all those to to pick out and then put all the right quotes in the right place to support the right sections of the thing. Then I realized I, I had to cut the number of quotes by about 80%. And, right. You know, just, but it forces you to distill out what's really important. I don't need to prove the same point with 27 different book citations. <laughs> I could probably do it with two, you know, so... So and and then you realize, you know, as you go through the process, you if you were to do it with 27, you'd be boring your readers to death. So, uh, you know, I I think uh, if I ever turn this into a proper uh, scholarly paper that uh, that mm -hmm. I could publish, um, it, it would be very long, but uh, but at least the 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 whole length would be all the millions of citations I have. Yeah. I would definitely compact the actual writing. <laughs> I think my first draft just the literature review, you know, was like 30 pages. And um, uh, my my thesis supervisor was uh, Verlin Flieger, and she's just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not a paper of other people's ideas. It's supposed to be a paper of your ideas. So you have to go back and, you know, cut that. But then even when I turned my thesis into a, an academic article, I had to cut more because 30 pages is too long you know, for, for that. So there's still more paring down to do. Can look forward to that. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, you really, you know, I, I, when, when, okay, just to bring it around to our favorite topic, the, when I first watched the Lord of the Rings movies, mm -hmm. I think the theatrical version doesn't have that. I think, I think this is true. And I know there, however many people on the list will tell me I'm wrong here, but, um, the scene where the orcs get eaten by the forest and the trees are swaying and it wasn't in the original theatrical version. And I remember lear learning that after I'd seen the, the extended version, I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. Why would you cut? And I had a uh, film student explain to me how critical every second of every movie is and how hard it is to fill in, you know, and decide mm -hmm. what to leave on the cutting room floor. Uh, so in some ways we have to be that way with the writing, I think as well. Yeah, absolutely. What did uh, what did you guys learn about the writing process going through the thesis process that you might not have known, I guess, on the shorter papers during the Signum? Like any advice you can give to people approaching uh, coming into the thesis? Um, Franny? Oh, it's uh, that you don't have to cite everybody that you've read. I read mm. a lot of things that never made that were important to my understanding of it all but that never made it into a citation but just pro basically primed the pump for me thinking about these things so yeah uh, one of those was the a book on essays called immortal engines that was the papers from a conference on immortality in science fiction that was held uh, about the turn of the century and uh, 20th to 21st. So it was, uh, point, yes, the most recent turn of the century. Uh, and it, it, it went everything from, you know, it, they had, uh, it had looked into the actual science behind various uh, forms of immortality and, and, uh, in, and it cited uh, texts from, you know, hundreds of, of science fiction texts that I've read and you know, most of which I've I've at least read or looked at, but I've been reading science fiction a long time. But it was, uh, you know, a lot of what I absorbed from that didn't make it into the paper. 
Any advice, John, or anything that you learned about the writing process? No, I'm, well, I'm always fascinated by the, uh, the the transition from the thoughts in the head down to the paper. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I love Stephen King as a writer is I always say he writes the way people think. Like he, he, the the conversation that might go on in my head, he is able to lay out so eloquently on paper. And I think if there's any bit of advice, I would say if you're if you're struggling, just try to put the words onto the paper exactly the way you're thinking them. You can always go back later and and tie them together in a, in a better fashion. But but those thoughts that are going on in your head are, are usually a, a you know word for word a really good depiction of the point you're trying to make. Um, so I try to short circuit what's in my head and, and get it right to the paper and then so much easier to go back after the fact and, and edit it down. Oh, that's, that's excellent. Uh, the Signum thesis process is two semesters and the idea is the first semester you get to focus on reading all sorts of things and then the second semester you get to focus on writing your thesis. How did that work out for you guys? I wish I had started writing. I wish I had started writing while I was reading. Oh, okay. I would yeah. have been able to focus. I think I would have been able to, to find that point of focus earlier than it did because that was my that was a big problem of mine. It's really narrowing uh, my my uh, my ideas into uh, uh, a usable, doable. <laughs> Do you mean something like journaling, maybe your ideas as you're reading? Um, yes. And but see, in my with my process, I would have been if I had been journal, and whole paragraphs of that would would have ended up in the you know I would have mm -hmm. been pulling in from from all of that for the final or at least in my first draft. Yeah. How about you, John? Had that two semester series no. work out? It, it worked fine for me. I, I think I needed to really read everything before I started. I, I, I honestly, I didn't have the structure of the final paper, and, and I think I changed the focus based on a lot of the reading that I did. Mm -hmm. So for me, it worked out okay. But that's kind of nice. I mean, going in with this idea that you think you're going to go this direction and then being open to going another direction where the research leads you is is exactly what we're hoping you know students will do because that's where the new ideas come from um, so that's that's pretty cool um, questions if you want to type those in now we've got uh, a few more minutes that we're going to be carrying on so we'll give you some time to type um, oh, I had a question on the tip of my tongue and then it just went right out the door so Anything that you guys want to talk about with with your thesis or your the thesis process? Well, I, I mean, I see Todd Heidenrich is out there, so I just wanted to talk about how the Caps knocked the Penguins out of this series. <laughs> Thanks for that, for your sports ball reference. No problem. You're, yeah. I'm sure he'll type something in in a second, and, and hopefully I can read it on live webcam. <laughs> he he uh, might be right now. You never know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Kate says boo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I'd like to, you know, I think one thing, uh, you, you asked me to share a reading list. Uh, oh, yeah. And... Uh-oh, you froze up a little bit. Oh, no, I think the computer gods are getting back at him for that sports ball reference. So while we're waiting for John to come back, <laughs> Franny, anything that you have to say about um, about your readings or, or your, your process? Um, uh, there was a lot more I could have read if I'd had the time. I, I would have brought in more, you know, read more of, of the Saint Germain books, rather, you know, read some of the ones I hadn't read before instead of just going, reviewing ones that I knew, that I already knew fairly well. 
uh, I don't well I don't think anything got read less than twice anyway so but, yeah that's the thing reading something yeah, more time that first yeah you almost need a a, a, a third semester before the before the for, you know a pre-semester a zero semester to to just you know immerse yourself yeah um, um this either either having that summer off or having a re really nice long mm -hmm. winter holiday to do that um i understand yeah i had a whole reading list for for what i'm doing now and i do find myself going back and reading them multiple times which is something that we're not used to, and I actually resist very much, but I'm glad every time I do it. Yeah. Oh no, I don't know what happened with John. He's off offline. Well, well, I think it's been raining where he is, so. Yeah, he said that. There's a storm, he might've been knocked off. He said that that, that was the case. So that that's too bad. Um, and Todd did respond, but I'm not going to read that uh, until I can read it. Read it to John. Oh. So what's next for Franny now that your your signum degree is oh. wrapped up? Um, I don't know. If I were 20 years younger, I'd probably go for a PhD. But well, you know. can always come back to Sigma um, and start to learn language. Well, that's what I, you know, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking on that. I've been actually, I've been cross stitching for the last several months, um, working on very intricate, uh, large projects that I had, you know, that I hadn't uh, been able to do for a long time. But and then just really decompressing. It's really been several months that I needed to decompress because yeah. I've been, you know, I, I've had the occasional semester off, but, but, you know, I've been going to school long, you know, that's a, a pretty hefty chunk of time that I uh, immersed myself in, in Sigma, but I'll be at MythMoot. Oh, good, good. That was a and question. I, and I really enjoy going to, and I really enjoy going to conferences, whether I present or not. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not sure. John has been to some past myth moots. I'm not sure if he's coming to this one. Um, but yeah, that'll be good to have you there. And and Todd says he's always impressed with anyone make, who makes it through the whole process. And I have to say, yeah, it's taking the classes for Signum is really fun. And you get into that thesis process and it's just like, uh, what what have I gotten myself into? And I, I needed at least six months to decompress after that. Well, the the course that they just started last year, what the uh, research, yeah, the theory and research class was really quite helpful. I do wish I had, you know, I had the opportunity to take it at the beginning of, uh, you know, which is what they're recommending now that you take it at the beginning of your career. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's the way they've got it uh, structured. It you can um, you can use that really to bring yourself up to your thesis proposal to get yourself yeah. ready for your thesis proposal. Yeah, when we went through Signum, they didn't have there that. Is. There he is. He's back. Yay. As expected, it was a, a hijacked internet by child with video game. Uh, <laughs> Aha. Well, this is being recorded, so you can yeah, taunt get them that with that for many, many years after. Okay, so <laughs> here are some comments from Todd. Haha, <laughs> John, at least I'll still have the pleasure of seeing Fleury win another Stanley Cup. And uh, one thing I've discovered is that I enjoy the material and the lectures and discussions, but I absolutely hate the writing process. And it's really hard. Uh, yes, Todd, it's really hard, the writing process. Oh. And this is like um, six months with just <laughs> you and the writing process. How was it? Yes. Because in the other Signum classes, you have a whole cadre of people that you're in contact with every week and suddenly you get thrown into this thesis process and it's just you mm -hmm. and the books and your thoughts. How, yes. Yes. How was that? That is, it is harder to, you know, without it, without having several people to bounce ideas off of or to hear their ideas as they bounce them off you. Uh, that, that the discussion sessions have been, were, were wonderful about 
to help, you know, it helps to my writing in the, in the class, you know, in, in the various classes. But, you know, it's, it, we don't have that with this. And, and, you know, we had a lot of time together. Yes, but it's still not quite the same. Right. How, how about for you, John? I'll tell you what's hard. Oh, sorry. Hang on for a second, Franny. I was going to tell you what's hard is pushing send on that first paper 35 years after your last paper. Yeah. That's hard. <laughs> that was hard. From My last academic paper was 1975, and that first paper in 2012 was just hitting send was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But I did it. You did it, and you got all the way through. I did That's it. great. And I got all the way through. That's great. So how was that echo chamber for you, John, where it's just you and your thoughts in the books for six months? Well, no, I, I mean, I, the, the good thing about the process, is, well, the good thing about the, the whole thesis is that it forces you to take an opinion, to take a, take a position, have an opinion, formulate a theory, and it's, it can be uncomfortable. You know, you're, uh, one thing, I, I was constantly worried that I was going to be taking a position that has easily been contradicted by every scholar in the in the field, you know, and and, and I, I, I put something together that looked brilliant in my in my mind, and then um, oh yeah, no, John, we invented the wheel already. That's great, you know. Um, so, but but once you've done that, the the boost to your confidence is fantastic, and I think it's a necessary element of the. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know I had to do a thesis to graduate. Um, because I have a, I have a tendency not to look too far down the path, because uh, I might go insane like an H.P. Lovecraft uh, character, and so when when he was like, I have to write a thesis? Are you kidding me? Um, I'm glad I had to do it. It was good. That's great. Uh, Kate has also been through this and and finished up, and she says she misses the group talk as well, and she's been precepting and auditing a couple of times, you know, just to to get back into that and. Um, and Harry Potter was her first class as well. So, she, so you and uh, and Kate started at the same time, Franny, and she remembers the terror of submitting yes. her first paper. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but you did great, Kate. I, I remember, I remember your paper on uh, Luthien Tenuvio. Um, we have one minute left. So, any last departing words? And and then after this, you guys get a diploma, and uh, and you're all done. Yeah. Words from us? I, yeah. Uh, I will, I'll let Franny go first. Oh, well, um, you, it, it's, it's hard work. It's sometimes terrifying. Um, but all in the end, it, it's, it's a wonderful sense of accomplishment. And uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, not do it again, you know. I wouldn't have not done it for the for everything. I'm so glad that I, you know, that I started with Sigmund and then I followed through. It, I'm, I'm really very, uh, I won't say pleased with myself, but I'm, I'm I'm very happy that I I took this challenge on myself and and completed it. And John, uh, I mean, I'd say uh, to me, life has always been a series of phases and. There was my undergrad phase. There was, uh, you know, high school phase. There were, and, and usually these phases correspond somehow to education. Uh, this is always going to be my most fond, if closest to my most fond, or if not my most fond, educational experience these last few years at, at Signum slash Mythgard. And uh, you know, I I hope to stay involved with the institute. It's it's just been fantastic. Oh, that's great. That's great hearing from, from both of you. Um, you guys were my first thesis students, so um, you'll always have a very soft spot in my heart, and I'm just super proud of both of you. Thank you for getting us through this. <laughs> thank you. Oh, yes, you were invaluable. It was a lot also of fun. I also would like to thank, I'd also like to thank Chris Larson, who was my second reader. Yeah, uh, the, the wonderful uh, she's, Christine Larson. I've known her. A wonderful. Dr. Christine Larson, whom I met on a um, Yahoo group Highlander fan fiction site 
long, long ago. Um, we were both using different names at the time, <laughs> but the she she was a wonderful help too, uh, uh, and not just in her second reading, but just in her support of me all these years that I've been since I've been back at Sigmund. Yeah, she's phenomenal, Larson. You're phenomenal. And both of you guys are phenomenal too. It's time to wrap it up, but I want to thank the audience for being here live. And if you're watching this recorded, thank you for taking the time to watch this. And hopefully uh, someday it'll be you sitting here in the Signum Thesis Theater. Thank you to Franny Moore Kyle and John Costello. You guys are officially done with your degree at Signum. Congratulations. Thanks. Thank, Thank you, you. Chris. <laughs> All right. Good, oh, no. good, good night and, and good journeys. Thank you. Thank you.